Bible. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. Most of you know we're making our way through the scriptures, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. If you don't have a Bible, we, be, we are happy to loan you one. All you have to do is raise your hand real high, and the ushers will be happy to let you borrow a Bible. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that. That'll be our gift to you, uh, so that you can have a, a Bible and read the scriptures. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. Uh, I entitled our message this morning, The History and Mystery of Mechizeldek. And if you're thinking, who in the world is Mechizeldek, this message is for you. Uh, and I will tell you that uh, it's going to be part one in one sense, because uh, the writer will have much more to say about this very interesting figure that we find in the Old Testament. And I do believe that it's important for us, we want to grab a hold of some key thoughts uh, and, you know, grasp them first, and then come next week, I believe we can pick up some momentum and, um, you know, cover a little bit more ground in the remaining verses and even the chapters ahead. So in one sense, it's almost like just making sure our gear is good, we tie our shoes, and we're going to head out on this trek. All right, so if you're there with me, Hebrews 7, I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of God and His Word. I'll read these verses aloud. You can follow along in your Bibles. As we've mentioned often, we don't really know who the, the human author is. He, he or she never identifies themselves, uh, but we trust it's the Holy Spirit who's inspired uh, the individual to pen these words. We read, For this Mechizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also then Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning the king of peace. And then we have some insight from the Holy Spirit in verse 3 that without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. And then from then on, the writer will say, now consider how great this man, Mechizeldek, was, in which in one sense we're going to do that now. That's the application for us this morning. All right, But let's pray. Father, we thank you again for another beautiful day that you've given us. Lord, the blessing that we can gather here in your name, openly and publicly, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, as we continue really in an act of worship, as we open and read and study your word, we pray by your spirit, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us to truth. And Lord, that we would understand the importance of not only Mechizeldek, but how Jesus then relates to this interesting person. And Lord, what it ultimately means for us to have Christ as our high priest to have uh, an intercessor that lives forever to pray for us and plead for us and loves us. God, that opens up the access that we can even come before you boldly to your throne room of grace. Lord, these are no small things. And God, we, we're grateful, we're blessed. We pray, Lord, now as we have the time of study that you would speak to our hearts. And so we commit this time to you. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we take a moment. You can 
air high five or elbow bump or whatever we're doing nowadays to greet somebody and say hello. All right, so if you're friends with me on social media, you maybe saw that I, I uh, got to go to uh, Oromori Beach. It's uh, kind of to the north of Ike Island. Uh, I got to go twice last week, which is great for, for me and our family. Uh, it is a beach that I, I really like. The sand is pretty soft. And one of the things I like about that particular beach is that the, the way that the cove is designed in the bay, even during low tide, you know, in other places where the, the tide will pull out and you can walk like 50 miles and still just be kind of ankle deep, that beach, uh, when it's low tide, there's still a, a drop-off and it's still, there's still some depth there and the water doesn't recede that far back. Were you guys able to grab that picture for me? So um, not far from the shoreline is this steep drop-off. And, and if you've been there, you already know this, right? Not just a few feet, really. I mean, with an arm's distance from there, are these little pockets of, of little mounds of coral. And usually around the coral, are, it's just teeming with all kinds of different fish. Uh, like all the fish that you see in Finding Nemo, all those kind of fish. And, and, and they're just freely swimming about, and they'll come right up to you. And, and again, it's easy to mark off. It's just the darker patches of blue. That's where the, you know, the water gets a little bit deeper. And, and so you can go and... In my opinion, your kids safely can go because they're just right there, uh, you know, not too far offshore and, and kind of snorkel and, and easily observe the, the beauty of God's creation. And, and again, it's just this rich array of sea life that's right before you. I mean, literally, all you have to do is just stick your face in the water. The bonus is, is that if you bring like a chicken sausage and have that in hand, the fish will come to you. And, uh, and it's great, especially if your wife doesn't like fish, to just kind of toss those uh, pieces on, on her for entertainment. Um, I highly recommend it. <laughs> I, I thought about that this, this time as I was studying and just thinking, you know, chapter 7 in one way is like the, the darker blue, deeper waters of Scripture. The writer wants to bring his reader to dip into this spiritual depth, and he hopes that that they will, of course, we, as we're reading it, we will observe with a, 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 an increasing appreciation, with uh, uh, an increasing comprehension, all that God has designed regarding the priesthood, of course, and, and for us then to clearly see how Jesus is our better high priest. And so that's what we get to do. So we're going to dive in. No chicken sausage needed this morning. Um, we'll just jump right into it. So verse 1, remember it's a continuation of thought or an argument that the writer has already been presenting. We read for this Mechizedek, and so he's already introduced Mechizedek, but now we get some more information. The king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. Now, the author is returning to a topic that he began to unpack back in chapter 5. And if you were with us, you might remember that. If you weren't, if you're familiar with Hebrews, or you can just turn back to chapter 5 and see where he begins to talk about him. 
he began to talk about how Jesus comes from the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek, but then all of a sudden he calls a timeout and he pauses the conversation. In one sense, he sets it aside and he addresses then the audience and he has some concerns, if you remember. His primary concern was he wasn't sure that they'd be able to understand what he wanted to talk about because he felt like they were spiritual infants, that they were still drinking spiritual milk. He wanted to give them some meat, but they weren't able to handle it. So there's a maturity issue there that he wanted to address. Along with that, he also has an issue, or uh, I guess it's a strong exhortive word, if we can say it that way, a warning, a caution uh, to those who were, you know, just playing church, who were around, who were listening, who uh, appreciated these topics. Maybe they were moved emotionally, but they really hadn't come to faith, and so he gave a very strong warning. Now, equally as strong, though, he kind of comes back to uh, an encouragement, and even he uses the word a strong consolation that you and I as Christians have and can find in Christ when it comes to our salvation, because, you know, uh, we have been um, the hope that we have is an anchor of our soul. It's sure and it's steadfast. It is concrete and it is continual. And, and how we can be, you know, uh, locked into that. Now, having addressed those concerns, he pivots back, returns back to his discussion about this interesting character, Mechezeldek. Now, the author is going to tell us his main point later on in chapter 8, verse 1. And he'll just tell us, and the main point of the things that we're saying is this, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, and he's going to then expound basically on what his main point was. But before he gets to his main point, he, he wants to develop the reasons for that conclusion. Now, if you're tracking, you remember his premise is pretty simple, and it's a construct of this, that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Aaron. He's writing to Hebrew Christians. They have a background in the Old Testament. They understand. They had admired. They had lived in the, the priesthood of Aaron. And so he makes this argument, say, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Aaron. He makes the argument to say, Jesus is not from the line of Aaron. Again, these are things they would know. But Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So therefore, if Jesus is a part of the priesthood of Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is greater than Aaron, then Jesus, therefore, his priesthood also is greater than Aaron's. Now, for us, when we step into this kind of argument, we might think or say silently, who cares? What does that have to do with me? Why even bother talking about this priesthood? Why spend chapters and verses and Sundays talking about this? Now, again, the writer will spend several chapters dissecting this, explaining this. And I imagine for many of us, the closest that we have come to any exposure to a, a, a priesthood is maybe like a pastor in a church or a chaplain in the service. 
which isn't exactly the same. There's some differences there. Or, or maybe for you, like me, uh, when I was younger, you know, I, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and so having priests and nuns and kind of that priestly system, that was just part and parcel to Catholic school and Catholic mass and, you know, and, and those things. And maybe, like me, you guys have that background, or maybe an Episcopalian one, or, or even Buddhism, right? Bo- Buddhists have priests. And so you're, you're used to uh, those type of offices or, you know, priests that are in those religious, uh, you know, faiths and, and, and priests that serve. Now, for the original audience, though, remember, for the Jewish person, the priesthood was an everyday thing. It was part of their everyday life. The priesthood and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was woven into the very fabric of their being, of how they function, their family life, what marked holidays for them and family events for them. I mean, their social life was just constructed around. It wasn't just uh, what they did on Shabbat. It wasn't just something that was, you know, kind of a religious part of their life. And so during the holidays we'll go and during the feasts and festivals we'll go. Uh, It was every day. See, for the Jewish community... The priest presided over almost all important matters of life, not just the spiritual. They would serve as judges and mediators, judicial things and legal issues and disputes. Someone borrowed uh, a DVD and didn't return it, like you'd go and talk to the priest. Um, uh, Civil matters, political matters. In fact, medical issues, you had some kind of funky sore and it was oozing. You didn't go to the clinic, you went to the priest and be like, hey, can you check this out? And they would make an assessment. Family issues, you wanted to add an addition to your house, you're going to build something, building codes. I mean, the, the priesthood kind of handled all of these things. And so for the Jewish people, if you will, the priesthood was like a, a one-stop shop type of uh, you know, place where most issues could be addressed. And, and this is how God designed it. And this is all laid out in the Old Testament for us, in the Levitical law, the Mosaic law. And so thus, the priesthood was very important. Uh, it was integral to their life. And the priest then would represent the Lord. He would, they would represent God to the people, all that God had desired for the people, and then vice versa. They represented the people before a holy and righteous God. So understanding that, at least for the original audience, putting your mind then that when the message of the gospel then came to them, and they began to hear, you do not need to follow the priesthood anymore. You do not need to follow the Mosaic law anymore. That Christ has come, the Savior of the world, the promised Messiah, Mashiach, and He has, in His own words, not abolished it, but completely fulfilled it. All that was promised, all that the law pointed to, Christ has fulfilled all of it, and thus has set you free from the bondage of the law from the the legalism that the religious leaders had turned it into, the rules and the rituals, what to eat, 
and what to wear and what day you can worship and the feasts and the festivals, all of it, you have been set free from that. That was a big deal. That was a huge thing for them. It was an entire paradigm shift for how they lived, how they grew up, how they thought. It was radical and difficult for them to leave behind the very tangible fixtures and system of the Old Testament. It was a challenge for many of them. And so the writer is making this plea, making an argument to demonstrate, in one sense, it's okay. It is still part of God's design. You're not violating what God has ordained and what God wants. Listen, I, I imagine for, for some of us, we can relate. The same is true for you. you know, sometimes when we're presented with, with truth, we've grown up in a different way, maybe a different faith system, we have a different background, or, or maybe none at all. And all of a sudden, someone begins to share the gospel with us. We begin to read the scriptures. And now we are confronted with what the Bible says. And we then look at that compared to how we grew up or the thoughts that we've hold, held on to or even the traditions that we've embraced that, that we would say those are good things in themselves. And yet, it's not what the Bible says. We can be confronted, if you will, with kind of a personal crisis for something that we've held on for so long, it's very dear to us. It's what our family does. It's part of our traditions. It can be upsetting. And sometimes we don't like it. Again, it's like our own internal crisis because sometimes these traditions that we have uh, they, they've been something we grew up with since we were kids. They're part of cherished, fond memories that we have. And yet they're not necessarily biblical. And it brings us to a crossroads. I mean, in one sense, that, that is what the Word of God does in anything that we think. It shines a light on what is true and what's not true. Shines a light in our hearts, in our minds, our habits, and, and yes, even our long-standing beliefs or thoughts to show us what is right and what is wrong. Now, sometimes it's not necessarily wrong, it's just neutral. We don't find it in Scripture. And so to demonstrate to the Hebrew Christians that Jesus is indeed our greater high priest and that God has indeed set us free, them free from the requirements of the Old Testament, the author reaches back into the Old Testament. He reaches back into history to an obscure figure found in the book of Genesis this man by the name of Mechizedek. And he's only mentioned twice in the Bible. He has a cameo in Genesis 14, and 
the writer of Psalms 110 refers to him as well, and the writer of Hebrews will quote that psalm over and over again. And so the writer focuses now on what I would call an enigma of the Scripture, of Genesis. But here's, before we even get there, note with me that the author turns in his argument to the truth of Scripture, to a biblical text to demonstrate that this isn't just his uh, curious conjecture. This isn't some belief that's a little bizarro that he's holding on to. This isn't just the consensus of some, but rather this is uh, built into the blueprints of Scripture, that this is something that God has designed. Let's go into the deeper part. Let's dive in into this and consider this as what the writer wants to do. Let's see what the Scriptures have to say. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this. And, and by the way, if I can make this point, that is so important for us. That's such an important principle for all of us. We want to know what does the Bible have to say about this? And this could be whatever topic we're talking about. Not the collective musings of some, certainly not the socially accepted ideologies of today, not the politically correct version of Christianity, not the experience or the emotionalism of the popular, and I would add even ourselves, we've talked about before, right? Sometimes we can have an experience and, and we place that above what Scripture says. That's a dangerous thing to do. And, and let me even add this, not even just because a pastor or a Christian leader says so, we want to be, we need to be good Bereans and you know, open up the Scripture. Let's look at the Bible and see what does the Scripture say? And what I'm hearing, what I'm being taught, what I'm reading, what I'm listening to, is this on par with what the Scripture says? Because the most important question, one of the most important questions we can ask and we can answer is, what does God have to say about what we're talking about? What does God have to say about this issue? in the Word of God. And all through the Bible, we find great examples of that. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the believers, they began to do something that was a little odd, it's a little strange, they began to speak in different languages, and a group of people who were there watching and observing, they're like, these guys are getting loaded. They're, they're, they're cracking open 40s, and they're getting drunk in the afternoon. And remember, Peter stands up, and he, that's my paraphrase, and Peter stands up and says, you're like, where's that in this Bible? You just told, it's, I apologize, it's Acts 2. Peter stands up and says, no, we're not getting loaded. This, we're not, these aren't people getting drunk. This is what the prophet Joel spoke of, and he quotes from Joel. He gives a biblical reason for what they were seeing, what they were observing, to give sense of what they were experiencing. Again, all through the Scripture, it's Paul who quotes Scripture to, when he writes to the book of Romans, arguably most of them weren't Jewish, they're Gentiles, and yet at the same time, he makes a biblical claim to explain to them, just because a person claims to be from the family of Abraham doesn't mean they have an automatic get-into-heaven card. It's not where your family, it's not your lineage. It's faith in Jesus Christ. That, that's what gets us to heaven. 
And he quotes from Scripture. He gives a biblical reason. It's faith in Jesus Christ, even for the Jew. So, all that to say, what, so what does the Bible have to say about this figure, Mechizeldek? The writer basically reviews history for us. I'm going to give you a summary of it, but if you'd like, you can turn to Genesis 14, and that's where you meet or we meet Mechizeldek. This is the part he's going to reference. He says, For this Mechizeldek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High, he meets Abraham. Everyone knows who Abraham is. Now we have some information. Abraham himself is returning from the slaughter of kings, and he blesses him. In response, we read verse 2, Abraham then gives a tithe, he gives a tenth of everything that he had. And then we have an explanation. We have an interpretation given for us as to what Mechizedek, his name means and his title means. And so we have a history lesson on this mysterious figure. So you can be a good Berean. Look at Genesis 14. I'm going to give a summary. Four kings go to fight against five kings. And the four kings win. They, they beat the five kings. They take the spoil. And along with that, along with the livestock that they capture, along with the women and the children and people they take as slaves, they also take Abraham or Abram, as his name was then, they take his nephew Lot, who was living in Sodom at the time. They take him and his family captive as well, and they bring them north to modern-day Syria. Abraham gets news of this, so he launches a rescue mission. He grabs 318 of his own homeboys. That's the Rick Barnett paraphrase version. These trusted men that were part of his household. He grabs 318 of them, they gear up, they march north to a place called Dan, again, which is kind of close to modern-day Syria. He divides his team into smaller units, very tactical. They wait for the cover of night. In the middle of the night, they launch this campaign to go rescue Lot, rescue the others, and basically fight against these, this coalition of kings. And the Bible tells us they win. Abraham's small tactical force overcomes the odds by God's help and grace. They recover the people. They recover the goods, all the livestock. They just have this truckload, camel loads, horse loads of stuff that they have just gotten. Gold and livestock and the, the bounties of war, the spoils of war. When Abraham is coming back home, he's traveling south. He's victorious in his rescue mission. We read that the king of Sodom is going to come up to meet him, but along the way, we also read this new king. We've never met him before prior to Genesis 14 by the name of Mechizedek. He comes out and he greets Abraham. And then there's this exchange where he blesses him. Abraham gives him a tenth of all of that stuff. And now the writer of Hebrews reaches back into Genesis 14 and he lays out kind of this, who he is. And now we're told, again, reviews some facts of the strange figure, but also we, we get some fresh insight as well. I, I believe Holy Spirit inspired him to, 
give us some additional things that we don't find back in Genesis. And so what are the things that we learn about this man? We learn that he is the king of Salem. Salem is a, a derivative of the word shalom. Maybe you've heard that word before in the Hebrew. Shalom just simply means peace. So they use it as a greeting. It's a common Hebrew expression, shalom. If you get to come to Israel with us and we go through the markets, you'll find these little plates and placards. It'll say, shalom, y'all. And you, you know, waited a greeting. <laughs> now, one additional thing we know from history that isn't mentioned for us here, that Salem is the uh, ancient name for Jerusalem. Yerushalim. It's and Jeru or Yeru, it means foundation, it means place. It's often translated city. And so Jerusalem is the city of peace or the foundation of peace. And so we have this first tidbit that Mechizedek is the king of Salem. He is the king of peace. He's the olden day king of Jerusalem that comes out. The writer also says... In verse 2, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Well, we just covered that, but what does he mean by the king of righteousness first being translated? See, not, not only is his position significant, the fact that he is the king of Salem, the king of peace, but his name is significant as well. His name has meaning. Melchai Zedek. It's a compound word. It just simply means righteous king. Zedek means king. And so he's the king of righteousness. Right? His name matches his job pretty well. You know, several years ago here in Okinawa, there was a Navy chaplain who was at Camp Foster, and it was Chaplain Moses. He was a good guy. I thought, what a great name for a chaplain, right? I'd follow that guy, Chaplain Moses. <laughs> Some people have a, a perfect job for their name. I, I found a few. Apparently, there's a, there's a name for it. I forgot, I forgot it. I'll have to figure it out for a second service so you guys lose out. But anyways, here's a few that I found. Perfect name, Lieutenant Les McBurney. <laughs> He's a firefighter. That's the perfect name for his job, right? Les McBurney. Uh, there's another one. There's a, uh, a, a lawyer, and her name, her name is Sue Yu. Sue Yu. She's a lawyer. It's a good one. Sue Yu. And then this, uh, this last one I found, a uh, perfect name for it. So he's a Samaritan volunteer, and his name is Alan Too Good. Like destined. You like that, Chris? <laughs> destined. Mekezeldeck is the perfect name. He has the perfect job. The king of righteousness is the king of peace. That's, that's kind of cool. But even beyond that, there's some more interesting tidbits about this man. Notice in verse 1, we're told he is the king of Salem. His name means the king of righteousness, so he has those things going for him. But also we find out he's not just the king, he's also called the priest of the Most High God, of El Elyon. 
the Most High God. Now, this is very interesting. And perhaps you already know this. Why is it interesting? Because under the Mosaic law, kings were not allowed to be priests, and priests were not allowed to be kings. God identified a particular role with particular responsibilities as the kings and the priests. They had their given role. And we talked about in the past, and again, maybe you're familiar, there are a few occasions where the kings uh, overstepped their boundary and tried to take on some priestly responsibilities. I think of King Saul as one of them, for example. And you remember Samuel comes and he rebukes him. What are you doing? That is not for you to do. And so there were these clear lines of responsibility, areas of responsibility that God assigned to kings and to priests. And you don't find anywhere except here where a king is a priest and a priest is a king. And of course, there's one other very important exception, and that's going to be his argument also in Jesus Christ. But Mechizedek holds the title of king. He holds the title of priest. And one point that the author will make later for us is that it's possible because Mechizedek predates the Mosaic law. Moses comes a thousand years after Abraham and Mechizedek. So in one sense, it wasn't against the Mosaic Law because the Mosaic Law wasn't instituted, if you will. It was okay. The law would change later. It's kind of like, you know, when some of us were younger, you could, the law, you could ride in the back of pickup trucks. It wasn't against the law. And that was true here in Okinawa. I grew up as a younger kid here, and my Okinawan uncle would often pick up myself and my cousins and throw us in the back of his little mini truck. And, I, and as I think about it now, crazy, because I think I was like eight or nine years old, riding on the tailgate that was like an inch wide. And of course, you're only going like 20 kilometers. But anyways, you know, we'd, we'd get pretty banged up if we fell out. But back then, it wasn't against the law. And so it's similar to that. Like, it wasn't against the law. It was something that, that at this time, Mechizedek was able to do, and is. He's a king and he's a priest. But then when we get to verse 3, so we have this background. The writer reviews all of this, gives us a history lesson. And now we're told, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. And so we have this his, history review. We have a little bit of insight of this mysterious figure. And now in verse 3, we have additional insight that Genesis doesn't give us. And I submit to you that the Holy Spirit inspired and revealed to the author to let the reader know, like, hey, there's some additional things here. And it's fascinating. Now, there's some debate as to what this actually means. Some suggest that it means literally what it reads, that this, that Mechizedek didn't have a dad, that he didn't have a mom, that he didn't have a family, that he didn't have a beginning and he didn't have an end. And so because of that, to 
interpret that literally, it led some to believe that perhaps Mechizeldek, if he doesn't have a mom or a dad, he doesn't have a birthday, he doesn't uh, have an ending, that perhaps he's an angel, that he wasn't a man, but he's an angelic being. Could be, the Bible doesn't say implicitly, is that the right word? Explicitly? Directly. The Bible doesn't say directly that he is or even that he isn't, although I would, I would contend. Remember that part of the argument the writer is making is that Jesus is our greater high priest. And he began the argument back in chapter 5, and he said that for every high priest is taken from man so that they can be empathetic. They'd understand what we're going through. And the writer says, and we have such a high priest who is sympathetic, empathetic, understands everything that we're going through. And so I would argue for you or argue to say, I don't think Mechizeldek is an angel. I think he is a man. He still follows the same principle that every high priest is taken from, from man. Jesus, of course, qualifies under that condition because he is, although he is fully God, he is fully man. Now some would also read that and suggest that it means there's just simply no record of him having a mom or a dad or a family. There's no, there's no birth record. We want to see your birth record. He doesn't have one. He's born somewhere, but there's no biblical record of his family line. We don't know where he was born. We don't know what happened to him after he met Abraham. We're not, there's no account given of that. We just see him in that scene, Genesis 14, as quickly as he shows up, that's it. He just kind of has this cameo, which also is very interesting because you might know that genealogies were super important to the Jewish people to establish your connection to what tribe that you belong to, that was something that was highly valued. And so they kept meticulous records of your family tree, your, your koseki in Japanese. When you go through the Bible, you know, we, you bump into lists of names. The, there's a genealogy record, and sometimes you're like, man, I'm going to slaughter all of these names, and I get to heaven, I'm going to have to apologize to these people for butchering the, the pronunciation of their names. And even when we get to the New Testament, there is a genealogy of names. Of course, they're very important because both Luke and Matthew are demonstrating that Jesus is connected to David, all the way to David's line, all the way even to Adam's line. And so there's importance to this. So the fact that Mechizeldek has no genealogy. There's no record of that. that. That's very curious. You guys ever done those genealogy tests like those? Is it Ancestry.com? or? I want to do one still. I'm really hoping I'm, like, I'm related to some kind of famous samurai or something. That'd be cool. Yeah. So they would suggest that if Mechizeldek did a 23andMe or Ancestry.com test, that it'd come back reading no parents no family found. How depressing that would be. <laughs> Just blanks. <laughs> Notice, though, there's something else the writer does tell us about this. Without father, without mother, without beginning or end, he says, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So first of all, the sentence structure 
points us back to Mechizeldek, that Mechizeldek is the one who remains a priest continually, just as Jesus is our eternal high priest. And evidently, he remains a priest continually because he has no beginning or end of life. And so because of that statement, there are others who would say, wow, we don't think he's an angel. We don't think he's just merely a man. Because of the descriptor of him, they would suggest that this is, in fact, Christ appearing in the Old Testament. And there's a term for it. It's called a Christophany or a theophany, an appearance of Christ or an appearance of God physically manifested in the Old Testament. And, and that happens. You, uh, even talking about Abraham, you might remember that when Abraham is there, all of a sudden we read about these three travelers that come in Genesis 18. And it says the Lord appeared to Abraham and the Lord has a conversation with Abraham about what he's going to do. In Genesis 32, we read about Jacob wrestled and initially we're told the angel of the Lord and most translations will capitalize that. that we believe it's a, a proper title for the Lord. Remember in Jacob asks, what's your name? And he says, my name's too wonderful. And he touches his, you know, his hip. And I love the spiritual lesson from that. His walk was forever changed. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel's buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are thrown into the ferny fire. Man, I can't, I need another cup of coffee. They're thrown into the, the fiery furnace. Thank you. King Nebuchadnezzar looks upon them and he says, hey, there's four dudes walking in there and one appears to be like the son of, of God or the son of man. Now again, we're not, told ex we're not told directly, implicitly or explicitly? You guys can help me. Explicitly? explicitly? All right, so second service, they're going to think I'm so smart. All right, <laughs> explicitly. We're not told explicitly that it is Christ, but the way that he's described, and I do believe, oh, that's the Lord. A great comfort that God is with us through the fire. And so we have these occasions where, yeah, we see an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Very curious, very interesting. And so some would read and say, hey, that, that's McKisseldeck. He is in a He's a manifestation of Christ. Remember when they're asking Jesus how old you are, and he says, before Abraham was, I am? And they're like, what? You're not that old. Of course, in a, he's asserting his, his deity, fact that he would use that title. But we know that Scripture teaches that Christ has, he eternally exists. That Mechizel then, then, like the Son of God, having no beginning or end, right? Jesus, we're told in John 1 that in the beginning the Word was with God, the Word was God, speaking of Christ. And so it could be that Mechizeldek and Jesus are the same person, but once again, the writer doesn't explicitly say that, doesn't say so. He says he's made like the Son of God. And so if we're going to take that, if you will, at face value, we'd say, okay, Mechizeldek is a distinct person. Unusual? Absolutely. Distinct? Unique? Absolutely. And I do... I would say he serves as a type of Christ, a picture of Christ, a symbol of Christ. 
One of the most fascinating aspects of the scriptures, how God masterfully crafted all of these powerful pictures. They serve as, and the writer of Hebrews is going to point some out for us in the later chapters. They serve as, as shadows, he calls them, or antitypes, or types, or pictures of Christ to come. Where the, the, the entire, actually all of scripture points to Christ, but the Old Testament you know, sometimes we, we read that and think, ah, oh, what's the lessons there? What are we talking about? Listen, it's talking about Jesus. If you didn't know, the Old Testament is talking about Jesus. It's a giant picture, story picture book that points us to Christ. The people, the systems, the, the tabernacle, the temple, the, the feasts and festivals. Christ is hidden in all of that. It's, in a sense, these previews, these little clips of coming attractions. I've shared with you guys before, I, I'm one who really likes trailers, movie trailers and previews. Back in the day before, you know, Apple TV and all those trailer apps, like when you go to the movies, like they would have a bunch of trailers before the movies. You guys remember that? And there was a time for me that if I was late to the trailers, I wouldn't go to the movies. I'm like, I'm going to get my money's worth. I want to see even the previews. But now you can just Google them, right, or you know, watch them in trailers. I love previews. And in one sense, the Old Testament, if you will, it's like a preview of coming attractions. We get these little clips and highlights of Christ. All of it that points to Jesus, foreshadows and pictures and types and all of the words that are used to the story of God's redemption, to the story of how he's going to bring Christ. And it's beautiful, it's powerful. But we have to understand that when we study these things, the pictures are not the actual thing. They're, they're, they'll, they're incomplete. <laughs> That's why they're called shadows. Or they're just foreshadows or their types. It, it's kind of like the pictures your kids draw of you or your family, especially maybe when they're like five or six. They don't quite have your portrait down, right? Usually you're just a stick figure with a big apple head and, you know, a big smile. Or, right? It's a beautiful picture. We cherish it. We put it in our fridge. We take a picture of it. We share it on social media. But no one would say, wow, look at that. It looks just like you. <laughs> No, it's a picture of you. It's cherished, it's beautiful, but it's an imperfect representation of you. And so likewise with these Old Testament types and, and pictures, they're, they're beautiful, they're intriguing, but they're imperfect. We can't line up every aspect to what we find in our perfect Savior of Christ. And so first of all, I just want to make the point, review the notion that the Old Testament points us to Christ. And, and the writer is going, and it's important for us to have that as a foundation because he's going to build upon this idea. I'm going to give you some examples. Maybe you already know this. The ark that Noah built. Did you know it's a picture of Christ? That that as a, as a structure is a, a symbol of our salvation. It foreshadows what God was going to do. There's one way in. One door, if you read the account of the ark, 
We're told that God would seal the door after everybody's in safely. God seals the door. And so the ark, if you will, is a picture of Christ, of our salvation. The one way in, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the door in the Gospel of John. The offering of the Passover lamb. Usually when we have communion, if I'm not running late on time, I'll try to reference this. The offering of the Passover lamb is a picture of Christ. You read in the, we read in the book of Exodus where God was bringing judgment upon the land of Egypt where the children of God were in slavery, they're in bondage. And God was going to deliver them. And the final plague that would come upon the land was one of death. And so God tells Moses to tell the people, you need to take a lamb and sacrifice this innocent lamb and take the blood of that lamb. It's really odd when you read it just on the face of it. Take the blood of that lamb and put it upon the doorpost of your house. And that very night, judgment's going to happen. God's going to send this angel, an angel of judgment, an angel of death, and when he comes through the land, if your door had the blood of the sacrificial lamb upon it, the angel would pass over your door, hence the name Passover. But that only happened, you were only spared, you're only saved if you had the blood of the sacrificial lamb applied, if you will, to the doorpost of your house. And so Peter just plainly tells us Jesus is our Passover lamb. By his perfect sacrifice, by us uh, uh, affirming by faith, applying by faith the blood of the lamb upon our lives, if you will, the, the doorposts of our heart, judgment is passed over. We are saved, we are spared, all because of what Christ has done. His one sacrifice, perfect saves us from the judgment. So it's not just things, it's also personalities. Of course, Joshua, very easy, a, a type of Jesus. They have the same name, Yeshua, Yahshua. Joshua was a humble, godly leader. And it was him, under his leadership, that he took the people into the promised land. And he did what Moses could not do. Moses representing the law. The law could not do, our Savior did. Of course, we know that though Joshua is not Jesus, he's a picture of Jesus, he's a foreshadow of Jesus. As amazing as Joshua was, he made mistakes. He didn't lead perfectly well. And so likewise, Mechizeldek is a picture of Christ. Is he Christ? Possibly. Uh, I, I can just say safely, he is a picture of Christ. He's an Old Testament personality that points us to Christ. There are things about him that are very unique and odd that are just like the Lord, a priest continually forever. And so the writer then validates this. His argument that Christ, who comes from the order of Melchizedek, is greater than the priesthood of Aaron. And ultimately, what does Melchizedek point us to, these truths? 
we talked before that there's not, or I think last week when we explained that these passages that we come into, there's not a lot of imperatives, right? There's not a lot of go out and do good to your neighbor, wash their car for them today, you know, be nice to your cat. There, you know, we're just giving declarative truths of who Christ is in this argument, although it's important for us. But what does Mechizeldeck teach us? This glorious truth that if he is made like the Son of God, if he is a picture of Christ for us that points us to Jesus, then we can see in him the traits of our Savior. And that is then Jesus is our King of Peace. He is our King of Peace. Christ is our King of Righteousness. And Christ is our High Priest of the God Most High. And likewise, the name of Jesus is very significant. His name matches his job. Arguably, his name is his job. The reason why he's named Jesus, it means God saves, for he will save his people. The Lord perfectly fits his office. He perfectly fits the role that the Father gave him. He perfectly fits when everybody else fails. And hopefully you will take comfort in that because you think about those who govern over us now. Think about who serves as, if you will, king over our lives now. Who serves as rulers over our lives now. Those who govern us today. I mean, I, I would contend that we long for a person that would bring us true peace. We long for a person that would be righteous, that would do the right thing, have integrity, have a backbone, wouldn't... Uh, sell out to money and special interest. If I can say this in love, or the wokeness of uh, today's society that would do what God has commanded, that would live honorably. And so much of the government, governments of this world are corrupt. People with power get intoxicated with that power. And they begin to think that they're above the rest. They, they create rules, you know, for the rest of us and rules for themselves. And it's, you know, it's hypocritical. It's frustrating. And as the saying goes, uh, not only does power corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we see that. And we watch what's happening. We pray, hopefully, what's happening in Haiti, now in Cuba, all over the world. These governments and powerful companies and conspiracies and corruption at the highest level. And it's almost become commonplace where we can read about it and just simply it becomes another uh, you know, headline on a, on a page post that we just kind of scroll right past. Like we're almost becoming you know, immune to it or indifferent to it. It's just commonplace. Cry out, though, and pray for a leader to be somewhat honest. Have some integrity, some form of it. I think the world's looking for that, wanting that. We live in a time that's so unstable, and real peace is an illusion. Oh, it's promised, it's talked about, but no politician can deliver that. No land treaty can bring that. See, the, Mechizeldek reminds us of this glorious truth that's only in Jesus Christ 
can we find our true peace. It's only in Jesus Christ can you and I find our true righteousness, to experience that, to enjoy that, to be secured in that. Only in Christ do we have a righteous king. Only in Christ do we have a king that brings us to peace. Only in Christ do we have a perfect high priest whose name is love, who forever lives to intercede for us, that pulled us out of the muck and mire and by his love washed us, clothed us, took our unrighteousness, clothed us with his righteousness. And as we're going to see in the verses to come, then lives forevermore to pray and plead for us on our behalf. The author of Hebrews will challenge us in verse 4, and we'll get there next week, consider how great Mechizeldek was, which we just did, And then he's going to further explain then how all of that and what all of that means, not only for them as they're reading it, but by argument, if you will, by proxy, if you will, for us, what it means for us to have such a high priest. So I pray you'll come back next Sunday. (laughs) Part two. I want to encourage you to read ahead. I've said this before so often. I believe that the Lord not only wants to give us revelation together as we read and we study and the Spirit falls and illuminates our hearts and minds, but I also believe the Lord operates in a sense of confirmation. You read something, the Lord begins to stir your heart, and I share with you what God stirred my heart on, and it's what God stirred your heart on, and then there's just confirmation. Yeah, the Lord spoke to me that way. It's such a great thing. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Your word is so rich. God, I pray that we, in in a sense, would be willing to jump into the deeper waters to understand and appreciate your beautiful design of the priesthood, of one very important facet of the identity of our Savior, of who He is and what He came to do, and in fact, what He continues to do even now. He is a priest an eternal high priest. And so, Lord, I I pray that these truths would, again, enlarge our heart for a greater appreciation and adoration, for a, a greater worship of who Christ is, to know that we have such a great high priest. Lord, I pray that these truths would not only be just intellectual things we meditate upon, but these would be tangible truths that are woven into our heart that impact then what we do and how we respond and how we think. Lord, how we serve and how we give and, and how we respond to the world around us to know that you are our King and you are perfect, and you are righteous, and you give us true peace. And that, Lord, that we wouldn't seek it from anything else. So, Lord, bless my church family, I pray, and I thank you for them and and our time together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, God bless you guys.